I've been in software my entire life, so my joke is that I made a company to fix all the problems that I had encountered in the 20 years that I have been building software. I just kind of fell into enterprise by default because I needed a job at the time. My theory was, let's just try everything and see if it works. So now we're almost five years in, and I was like, please, just because we tried this thing in the past and it failed, it doesn't mean it can't not succeed now. If you have something that's delivering value, people keep using it. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we power the world's best enterprise software. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. Today, we're talking with Edith Harbaugh, the CEO and co-founder of LaunchDarkly, one of the first feature flags as a service companies, where they offer feature management platform aiming to help teams build better software. We'll get some backstory on how she got in enterprise software and some of the lessons she learned from building advanced enterprise features, including an elaborate role-based access control system that ultimately missed the mark on simplicity. We also discussed the evolution of enterprise sales, how the role of a salesperson is observed by her nearly 20 years of building software has really changed. Finally, in one of my favorite moments, we talk about some of the instances where a founder needs to be a little bit shameless, especially dealing with enterprise buyers. All right, Edith, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. It's great to be here in Vegas. Yeah, it's uh, we're looking out over the, the Vegas, uh, well, I guess, landscape, not really the Strip, so. Well, the beautiful Vegas airport. Yeah, exactly. To get things started off, I'd love to just have you give the audience a little bit of your background and kind of how you got into enterprise software. Yeah, so I'm Edith Arba. I'm CEO and co-founder of LaunchDarkly. I graduated with an engineering degree in 99, which was the height of the dot-com boom. And what you did back then was you moved to San Francisco and worked at a dot-com. So I did something that was even more derivative than that. I worked as a consultant for dot-coms. So this is back then when you get, you know, two Stanford MBAs, they get a couple million dollars for the idea. And then, of course, they had to have engineers to build it. And so I worked for a company called Expedia, which was basically we would come in and would build your product. This was a really viable career until suddenly it was not. When all the VC money dried up. Yeah, yeah. and that really happened literally within a, a, a two months. Like, I remember us all being fully staffed because we were... We were by the hour, and I remember somebody walking down a hall being like, I have no bench. Everybody is out on the field. There's nothing we could give you. And then two months later, it's like, hey, we don't have any jobs. <laughs> like, all these VCs had stopped funding companies. The companies didn't have any money. And the company literally went from listed on the NASDAQ to delisted. Whoa. So that consulting firm... Completely went under. So went public... I think it was public for two years and then delisted. Wow. It was good they got delisted because, well, so the name of the company was Expedia with an X. Right. Expedia had actually filed 
uh, a lawsuit that they'd they'd won and they were in the middle of rebranding and then it's like, well, we're just going under anyway, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. But that was my kind of brutal introduction to, uh, you know, it's really good to actually make money. Yeah, that's the beauty of enterprise software, right? Like if somebody's paying you for a unit of value, that's far better than uh, you depending on uh, VCs giving you another dollop for pets.com. <laughs> okay, so out of college, you know, dot-com boom, went to SF, took this job. So then how did you, like, what, what was the path into like true enterprise? It was basically, so I got laid off because they shut down our San Francisco office in the process of shutting the company in, I think, November of 2000. And I was looking around for a new job and I really wanted to stay in San Francisco. Sure. And back then, all of the jobs were down in the valley. Like they were all in San Mateo at best, but really down Palo Alto Mountain View. Sure. I didn't own a car, so I had to borrow a car for an interview. And I went down for the interview, and they offered me a job. And I was like, I don't want to drive down here every day. Yeah. So I lived down there, I guess, right? Yeah. I mean, I was a kid. I was 21. I sure. didn't want to live in Mountain View. Yeah. So it was kind of by default. I, would, I knew I wanted to stay in San Francisco. And now it's like, well, there's... Tons. <sighs> tons of companies. Back then, there really wasn't much. Yeah. It was so... Uh, a friend of mine had gone to a company called Epicentric. He said, come over, join us. And so I just kind of fell into enterprise by default because I needed a job at the time. So and you joined as an engineer? I was um, a software designer, so a spec writer. Oh, okay. You know, so I would design all the systems and write up how they would work. It was a portal management system, so I wrote up all of how we would do delegated administration and how we would deploy out and bundle up different systems. A lot of the work really held up. So I worked with Ed Enough, was the founder of the company. Oh, I love Ed. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah. He went on to oh, uh, Apogee. Apogee. Yeah. yeah. Well, he was at Six Apart. So he oh, was. Right. So I was kind of the young kid who did the grunt work of you know actually writing up all the specs. Oh, funny. And so we ended up getting, uh, I think, like three separate patents together. That's awesome. It's funny, too, that how the the network like sort of persists through the rest of your life, right? Like you see it at events and things now still too, right? Yeah. Many years later. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because the stuff we wrote, people still use. That's cool. Yeah. What was the software? What did it do? It was for managing portals. So it's funny, I, I was at a dinner last night and somebody had worked at Disney and they still use some of our software because it's portal management and you could write portlets, which is basically a, a microservice you would call it now. Mm-hmm. And Disney wrote their time code management as a portlet. Disney has 50,000 employees just in Florida. So they still use it for that. But there's no company behind it anymore? It got Uh, sold or? Epicentric was acquired by Vignette. Okay. So after I left Vignette, Vignette was acquired by OpenText. Okay. And then that's still? OpenText is a public company in Canada. Oh, wow. Okay. So the, the staying power of enterprise software with these contracts, I guess, right? Well, if you have something that's delivering value, people keep using it. Yeah. Like I, I remember I would go on site, like uh, IRS was a customer of Vignette. Oh, cool. Um, NASA was a customer. So, I mean, big companies doing real things. Yeah. And I, I think the idea for why enterprise software companies persisted through the bust was because they had these large, like non dot com customers that actually could continue to pay them, right? Yeah. So 
you know, unlike the portal, like the, you know, like web portals, not, you know, like that were building all their business off of this, you know, VC.com money that was kind of circular and it never really left the ecosystem. An enterprise software company selling software to Disney that's been around for a long time or NASA that's been around for, you know, 50 years. Those are customers didn't go out of business. Yeah, I actually, I loved visiting the IRS because people, they were really happy. Really? Yeah, so they knew that they had a job. Oh, interesting. Like, and they they could plan these 10-year cycles. Oh, interesting. So they're like, okay, we're going to do this next year, and then this, like, so they could have a 10-year roadmap. We would go to another customer, Genentech, and everybody was miserable. So, like, maybe we'll do a layoff next quarter, maybe not. I don't really want to plan too far in advance. And IRS people were happy as a clam. And they know they're not going to get audited. <laughs> yeah. well, I, don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> I, I loved working with IRS. I loved working with NASA. We had a lot of really big brand name customers using us. And so at that point, you were writing specs for how the software should work. And it sounds like some of this was like true enterprise functionality, right? It sounded like the thing you were describing was, was similar to RBAC, right? The sort of. Yeah, delegated role. administration. Um, yeah. So actually, multiple levels of it. And a lesson I learned the painful way is we built this elaborate system and nobody actually used it. Like it turned out that people wanted a much simpler RBAC implementation. Okay. We, we'd kind of spun off the deep end of like, what if you want to, you know, share this component to this person and they want to reshare it to this person, not to this person. And like, we couldn't even build a UI to express the API at some point. Yeah, sure. And then we'd go on site and people are like, I just want to put the picture of the horse on the website. So, so like we built all these elaborate rules about who could do what when. Oh, got it. That just got in the way, and people are like, "I just want to publish this picture." Yeah, and you're like, <laughs> all right. So, the, so the internal joke became, "Let him put the horse on the website or something." Our CEO at the time is like, "We built a mission to Mars without a coffee maker, and people just want that goddamn coffee sometimes." <laughs> <laughs> like we'd over-engineered everything and didn't solve the really simple use cases. And I think that's why Vignette, you know, got subsumed by Blogger and WordPress, mm. who did a really good job at really simple use cases. Yeah, and over time, you know, I mean, WordPress has become a pretty massive enterprise software company, right? Yeah. And so it's, you know, that's part of that consumerization of IT movement, right? Create experiences that are easy for people to use. Now you might need. That advanced functionality in there, right? But maybe don't expose it to all of your users and keep it, you know, behind a feature flag, maybe or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, the lesson I learned was make the simple stuff possible, and then also have all these advanced features. But if you don't have the simple stuff at the, the core, yeah, yeah. At Tripit, we had a saying which was "time to bacon." Okay. So Tripit, where I went uh, later, was a mobile app. Right. Mobile apps are pretty brutal. Like people download them. Half of mobile apps that are downloaded don't get opened once. Wow. And so if people open their app, you need to give them, we called it bacon, like something good very quickly, mm. or they will never open your app again. So, like, we obsessed over what nugget of goodness or strip of bacon can we give people in the shortest possible time so they will reopen the app. I think the same thing holds true to enterprise software now. Okay. When I started out in 2001, 2002, you know, people would sign these three-year enterprise-wide site licenses and you're just kind of stuck with whatever your CIO had bought. Now with the rise of SaaS, people sign up, they better like it very quickly or they're just going to never log in again and let it lapse. Yeah, that idea that someone signs up 
and they're using the product. And really, they only ever pay a large enterprise-wide license agreement once a bunch of people are using it and they know that the utilization is there and the adoption is there and that the value is there. Then they're coming to you looking for, well, how do I get the rest of my team and get a value and get control, right? But at the start, it's like you got to get those users to just use, the, you know, get, them, get them some bacon, right? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> otherwise, you know, it's like, well... You know, every, everybody does this. You know, you're looking for bookkeeping software and you're like, hey, I couldn't figure out this one, so let's not go with that. You only have one chance yeah. to make a good impression. That's a great point. And the amount of research people do, like, especially with the ability to just sign up, try things out, and be like, yeah, couldn't figure it out, didn't work, move on, right? Yeah. So SaaS completely disrupted the way software used to be sold. It would take, you know, two, three, six months just to get something installed. Right. You know, so that's why you had a POC of, hey, let's even try to get this configured on your system. And then once it's installed, it's like, oh, it's good enough. Bring in the, you know, the systems integrators to try to like hook it up into the rest of your systems, you know, spend a bunch of money there, and then even scheduling that and getting the IT systems all set. Yeah, it's a yeah. huge, huge time suck. Yeah. So what SaaS changed is that the end users are suddenly back in control. Like, because they didn't have to go to IT and say, "Hey, can you provision a box for me?" Right. I think that there's a combination there. It's it's both the you know introduction of that bottom up SaaS where you could just sign up and start using it and kind of create this shadow IT thing where like no one really even knew you were using it. But then I think there's also a really important piece, which is just the interoperability between applications and sort of the existence of APIs, right? Like, I mean, I think Salesforce still charges to access their API. Like, it's not available at their like base level plan. Which is kind of crazy. Like most software companies, modern software companies that are, you know started today, like an API is like as common as signing up for a user. You can like create a token, right? Salesforce is worth you know is going to do ten billion in revenue, so I'm not going to. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to tell Mark he's doing it wrong. Yeah, I think it's just a part of how they've always done it, and it's just been how they you know differentiate their products. And Salesforce is also like very lucky to be the the system of record, so everyone has to integrate into Salesforce, yeah, and that creates gravity for them. And so, you know, if you're another SaaS application, you start up like no one's going to integrate with your stuff, so you like need to have an API that like, and then you need to do some external integrations. You need to make that API as available as like a possible. Like, you just want everything. You want every integration possible. So, I think that's a little different today than it was twenty years ago. I, I don't know. I think people sometimes. Feel like APIs is magic cure all. Sure. Like uh, we had an API at TripIt, and the only people who really used it were honestly people who were trying to rip us off, like we're trying to skin it and make a TripIt replicate. Yeah, but you were. I mean, it was a consumer company, right? Yeah. So it's like the the reason I think that APIs are important for enterprise software is because it lives in this whole world of other applications. It's not just like you have one app. Yeah, I think the mistake I've made people make, or maybe not mistake, but the learning is to be very deliberate about what is APIable. Mm, okay. Like what, it's not just like sprinkle APIs on something. It's like, okay, how do people want to integrate with my system? I mean, application program interface. Like, what are the functionality they're trying to get in and out of my system, and make that very good, and not just like, hey, let's API this thing over here that nobody cares about. Sure. It's, it's an interesting perspective to say, like, really think about what. Should be available in your API, and sort of. I think you have to design it to your, from your perspective, 
to make sure you're thinking about what that use case is. How will someone use this? Because maybe you need to have additional fields that you didn't yes. have initially yeah. in order to have like a global locator for them to have a different record and integrate with different systems. You have to think about it globally, not just about your application specifically. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you put it very well, like how does my application interact with the rest of the world? Right. Because nobody's a silo anymore. Exactly, right. I think that's maybe the difference between that consumer world where like, you know, most of my like consumer apps don't really talk to each other and like I don't share data between them. Right? <laughs> but, like my enterprise stuff, it's like if I can hook it up to to create a workflow or a pipeline, like I'm gonna do it. Yeah. So then after TripIt, that's when you went to Atlassian, is that right? My co-founder worked oh, at Atlassian. Yeah, sorry, sorry. My co-founder John and I met at Harvey Mudd College in LA. Right. And he went to Coverity in Atlassian, and we had used feature flags at our respective jobs, like we use them heavily at TripIt. Oh, interesting. So you both had been using feature flags independently and stayed in touch about this concept. Well, we stayed in touch because we were friends. Yeah, sure. I mean, it wasn't like... Yeah, okay. <laughs> like, wasn't feature flags you brought you together all the time. <laughs> you know, we were, we were friends. Like, you know, we went on camping trips, went to Coachella. It's funny, we, we were working on another idea around static analysis, which he'd gotten his PhD in. So I was talking to a lot of developers about static analysis, and I kind of realized that I didn't, I didn't think there was a big enough market for us to do a company. But I had been talking to all these developers, and they were all talking about how they liked feature flags, and they're like, why do we have to keep rebuilding the same system that we had at our prior job? Like LinkedIn had a pretty mature system. People would leave LinkedIn. People would say, hey, why are we rebuilding this? Sure. And um, at TripIt, we had our own internal system. Because we had 10 million users, we didn't want to launch a feature at all 10 million. Right. So we would do a lot of stuff where we would launch it off and then turn it on for selective users who were friendly, who mm. we knew would give us good feedback. And then we would do percentage rollouts. And also, if something went bad in the field, we could just shut it off. So we used it extensively. John had used it at Atlassian. And I said, John, I think we should build a system to do this. And John said, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, because there was two questions. It's like, is there a market, and could John build it? And sure. John's like, I think I could build this. I'm like, great. I think I think there's a market. Your your other half is, you know, I think there's a market. Yeah. Well, because static analysis is it was a hard road. Sure. Yeah. I mean, some people are making a success out of it, but I didn't think it was a big enough market for us to really go after. And but your your thesis was that everyone's going to build software, and so they're going to need this as a way to to do a modern deployment pipeline. Yeah, I mean, the joke is, so I'd worked at Monster, um, the job sure. site, and even at the time I was frustrated that there wasn't a tool like LaunchDarkly. Okay. So, so my old boss, and Dwayne, says, Edith, you always used to complain that we had to build this in-house, so you finally just made a company. <laughs> just, you, you hated this problem so much inside of all these companies you worked at, you had to just build, solve it for everyone. Yeah, because I remember I was like Googling, like, why can't we just buy this? Yeah, yeah. Well, good thing you couldn't. Well, it's, it just seems it seems so obvious in hindsight. And so you and John were discussing this idea, and this is what four years ago, five years. Yeah, ago? this was um, June of twenty fourteen. Okay, and so you were talking about it. Said we think this is a this is a business. Just the two of you to start. It was the two of us. He was at Atlassian, so at this point, Kerr had bought TripIt. Okay. So I, I had also gotten all this enterprise experience from Concur. Sure. So TripIt was kind of the classic consumer mobile app, and Concur bought it for a good price. I think it was around $100 million. Nice. And one of the reasons they bought it is I joined TripIt to start up their TripIt for Business. 
Okay, cool. Which was us selling services to businesses, and that got Concur's attention. Mm. Before they saw us as this cute app, they're like, oh, they're going after a core market of business, and so they acquired us. Cool. So uh, I was a part of why we got acquired. And at this point, you were doing product or engineering at TripIt? I had been a product manager there, right. and then Concur acquired us, and... Concur is brilliant at enterprise sales. Really? I mean, they are a juggernaut. They got bought for $8 billion by SAP. Right. Because they are very, very, very good at enterprise sales. And what, what makes them so good? They really know their buyer. Mm. So they sell to CFOs, and they have a very good pitch to CFOs, and their entire sales force goes and tells a CFO, you know, this is why you should buy Concur. And it becomes this inevitable thing. People buy Concur because other people buy Concur. Yeah. It's like you don't get fired for buying Concur, right? Yeah, and it just becomes a self-reinforcing thing. I think I had to use it when I joined a bigger company five or six years ago. I wasn't a big fan. Yeah, so I said they were very good at enterprise sales. The exactly. Actual, yeah. So they, they, know, they know their buyer, which is the CFO. Yeah. The users, oh, yeah. not so happy. Right. That that feels like it's becoming less common, but it's still fairly common in the enterprise software you know world, right? Is that end users don't have as much of a say. Probably far less true in the developer tools world, where I think end users really do have a lot of say. But you know, a CFO picks a technology because it auditable, great reporting, you know, all these other things, and the end user experience is an afterthought half the time. Yeah, I mean, well, like look at Salesforce. Right. I mean, they sell to the VP of sales, not to the ICs. Right. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the Salesforce experience. I still remember when I joined that larger company, when we used Salesforce, I was staring at a dashboard for about three or four months, and the sales reps, I was in product, the sales reps were telling me they were selling more of this product that I was building, and I couldn't. I was like, why is, why is the dashboard, why, why are we not seeing any, any sales <laughs> here? Turns out there's like a refresh, a refresh yeah. inside of the dashboard. It's not like... No, when I refresh the page, is it supposed to refresh? No, like you have to go to this like special button and hit refresh. Yeah, Salesforce, like I said, they make a ton of money, but they're their user experience is very dated. Yeah, I think I mean Lightning is better from what I hear, but but it's ultimately I think it's it just comes down to the fact that there's an inefficient market in enterprise software, right? And this is why you can have huge commissions as well. Well, it's inefficient or efficient depending on how you look at it. Okay. Like How the, is it efficient? They are very efficient at selling to their buyer, which is the VP sales. Sure. It is efficient from Salesforce perspective. It is inefficient from like a market perspective, in my opinion. Oh, that the market would have better. Yeah. Well, so I mean, I, I guess I also believe that like any market with like large commissions is inefficient. Ah, interesting. And that's just like a general thesis because it's like if you think about like, like brokerage, right? Yeah. You know, 20, 30 years ago before information was freely available. Stockbrokers and bonds brokers like had information that other people didn't have, and so they were able to create this spread, yep. and that spread is commission, right? Yeah. And so, I think like you see the same thing as like as inform as there's a huge information asymmetry in inefficient markets. As the information becomes more symmetrical, commissions shrink, like like the bid ask gets closer, and you end up with like you know not needing huge commissions. And so I I, I think that's a sign. You know, but that's just like a random aside. Yeah, I'll random your random aside. Great. My sister lives in New York, and the idea of broker commissions on apartments, just I, I can't wrap my head around it. Yeah. Like, so when she moves, she has to pay two months' rent to a broker. 
it's just the market there, right? Like everybody does it and, and think they, it kind of persists itself, right? Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's, it's laws, right? Like in California, you have to be a real estate broker and you have to, you know, do two years of studying and have all these hours. And then like, they, so they, they end up persisting these entrenched systems. I'm going to stand up for commissions. Okay, let's hear And it. sales. Yeah, great. So I'll, I'll, I'll say, um, so I had a mix of experience. Like I'd worked at big enterprise companies like Vignette. Like Vignette, we did not take deals under a half million just because it wasn't worth the cost of sales. Sure. Because we had to do a POC, you had to send people on site. And then SaaS came along and changed everything. Yep. And then I was also at Concur, but even then you had salespeople. Sure. Atlassian famously does not have salespeople. Right. I say, you know, air quotes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so when we started LaunchDarkly, John and I had this idea that we would be this really bottoms up, feature flags for all, you know, self-serve thing. I think every technical founder has this this dream about their software company. <laughs> we all we did it replicated too. <laughs> just well, well, and we we made this really nice self-serve checkout path. Oh, cool! Integrated with Stripe or something, or yeah, you know, it was all ready to go. And then our first big customer, who by the way was sat next to me at our dinner last night, which was awesome. Oh, funny. He wanted a contract because he worked at a big public company, and they needed a year contract. And they didn't want to do self-serve. And I kept saying, like, hey, just put in your credit card. Right. Like Easy. Like, no, and he's like, no, the way our company works is it needs to go through legal and security and procurement. And I'm like, just put in the credit card. He's like, no, we need a year contract. So that was my brutal introduction to we were actually enterprise sales. Yeah. And that you need a salesperson a lot of times to actually help you navigate your own bureaucracy. Yeah, point taken. And I'd say that potentially the commissions can also be attributed to the fact that these are not commodities that are being sold. And so the commoditization of technology would also force down prices and force down commissions. But one like software solution versus another, they're not like they're not interchangeable. They're not wire compliant. Some has different features, different security models, different things. And so so then in that case, a you know a complex sale in a complex application could, I guess, create the need for larger commissions. So Well, even beyond that, like our own experience, so we'll have a champion at a company and they're like, I love this. Can you come and give a demo to the rest of my team and get them on board? Right. You know, and I'm like, oh, that's a salesperson. Sure. And and the hilarious thing is so we sell to developers and so they'll say, like, hey, we need somebody to come on site and give a demo and work with procurement, but not a salesperson. <laughs> I'm like, because <laughs> we hate salesperson. I'm like, but that's a salesperson. Like, we'll call it another name, but like, yeah, that's what they do. They're like, can you help send somebody on site to help us understand your software and see the value and convince other people and work with my purchasing? And I'm like, you just described a salesperson. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. So I think the word salesperson has gotten a really bad rap back from the early days I talked about in like 2001 where you couldn't see the software for six months. Mm. So they were kind of flim-flam, PowerPoint, you know, uh, chicanery for lack of a better word. That's interesting. So your perspective there is that the role of the salesperson has changed. I'm guessing, so it's actually an interesting question. In your sales, so I I think about this, I, I differentiate between companies sometimes in the enterprise software world as sign up, 
or contact us, right? As what, what's the main call to action on your website? So we're still doing a hybrid because we sell to developers. Okay. And some developers are just allergic to salespeople. Yeah. They're like, just leave me alone. I will put in the credit card. Yeah. And others are like, hey, please, mm. I want a rep. And then they'll write again, like, the rep hasn't gotten back to me quickly enough. Like, please, you know, I want a rep. And uh, the nice thing is people love our salespeople. I mean, not to brag too much about Launch Darkly, but no, go ahead. They see us as a trusted advisor. Like we went to New Zealand to visit customers. The customer had a gift for our salesperson. Oh wow, that's great. Yeah, like so he's like, hey, I know you know. So we got him a really nice new New Zealand gin. Oh, cool. Because he said, thank you so much. You've helped me so much. Here's a present. That's awesome. Which is not how people think about salespeople. Right. Or like, um, we closed a deal with another big bank in Australia, and I'm the CEO. So I had just literally signed the contract and I got an email from the customer. Your salesperson was amazing. He helped us so much. We're really happy. Looking forward to working with you more. That's great. Yeah. So I think salespeople have been tarred with this awful image of pushy people instead of, hey, this is somebody who can help you. Yeah. And I think that's what gives us as technical founders a bad taste for sales you're right. Maybe it's just a it's it's a sign of the maturing model of like now we can show you the software faster. We can help you understand. We're actually like trying to communicate value and communicate like how this fits into the rest of your tools and how this should work. And there's education. So yeah, I mean it, the the role of a salesperson. It's not to trick you, right? It's not to trick you. It's not to hoodwink you. It's not to bamboozle you. Because you know people can cancel a contract at any time. Sure. And we we have 140 percent retention because we're like we will sell you good things that you will like. Yeah. And so you made this transition to you. You first had it as a sign up flow, and you could pay with a credit card. And your first customer wanted a contract. So did you go off and hire a salesperson, or did you do the early sales yourselves? I did all the early sales myself. <laughs> I'd like to say um, it was from some noble urge, but uh, I kept thinking they were one offs. Hmm. Funny. And then I realized that I was the bottleneck. Okay. Because literally people would be like, we're ready to sign. Where is the order form? And I, I'm the founder. And you know how it is. You're doing like a million things. Yeah. Uh, somebody's like, I'm really ready to pay you money. Where is this order form? And so that's when we hired our first salesperson. Okay. So then how, how far into the company's life cycle was that? It was about two years in. Okay. So, so I did basically the first million in sales. I became the bottleneck. We hired somebody. And so at this point, you had raised how much money? We'd done our seed, so we'd done a $2.6 million seed round. We'd been selling for about a year. So it took us a year to basically build anything sellable. Okay. I mean, we had people using it, but it was about a year in until anybody would really pay us money for it. Mm. So you were bringing on these early customers, getting them to like try it out and use it and give you feedback, and then eventually you felt like you had something that you could charge for and people would pay you for and... And you were selling those deals for the next year. Yeah. And then got it up to about a million and realized like... I'm the bottleneck. Yeah. What did the team structure look like at that point? Was there mainly engineering? Was there product? Was there marketing? We were an eight-person company. You're an eight-person company. So like the department thing sounds a little bit grand. Well, I mean, so I I think about it as like, did you have someone who was responsible for marketing? Yeah, so the joke is I was our first AE and SDR. Sure. John Kodamal, my co-founder, was our CTO and SE. Okay, sure. So, like the early deals, like you got us. Exactly. Absolutely. Like whether you liked it or not. Yeah. 
Um, and it's really fun now because now we have over 500 customers, but the early ones, they know me and John and I sure. know them. Like, we talk to them. Yeah. We then hired two engineers. We hired marketing very early. So a designer was our fifth hire. Marketing was our sixth. Mm. And I actually credit Tom Drummond. Oh, from Happy Bit. Yeah. I'm a good marketer. Sure. And I kept thinking I could just keep doing it. And he's like, Edith, you need to scale to millions of dollars. You're the CEO and doing a lot of things. You need to hire somebody to do this full mm. time. And except for Tom said this far more harshly with more British swear <laughs> words in it. <laughs> he's like, you got to scale. Yeah. So a marketer was our sixth hire. And I okay. think that was really smart. People sometimes say, oh, I'm going to wait till my A and then hire marketing. Mm-hmm. Those companies usually don't get an A. Yeah, I mean, somebody has to do the marketing, right? Either it's going to be you're doing it and you're putting all this effort into it, or you have to hire it in order to get there. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to do it off the side of my desk. It's like, no, somebody just needs to do this sure. all the time. Yeah, and so who was really doing product at that point? Kodamal. Okay. Co-founder. So he was doing, John was doing both CTO, product, and then sales engineering. Yeah, <laughs> and support, yeah, and and sure. the joke was a uh, chief T-shirt officer. Okay, so he he had some marketing uh, responsibilities himself. Oh, you know how it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, every, yeah, yeah. Everybody did everything. So you hired someone in the marketing before you had sales. Did that marketing person focus on like sales enablement, collateral stuff, or what? What was their a lot of would, content marketing? Okay, that was what was working for us. We doubled down on it. Sure. I think that's a that's a great strategy early on. So content marketing around just feature flags. Great. We realized that there wasn't a lot of good technical content out there around feature flags, mm. which was really good for us because we could put out a lot of content very quickly SEO for it. Mm, sure. And who was writing the content? Everybody. Okay. Like uh, <laughs> I wrote a lot of early posts. I would track how they were doing. I, I could see that we were doing well on Google. I knew that we would start to have competitors, so I said we need to double down and write more content. So yeah. as part of our weekly sprints, because we're an engineering company, everybody mm-hmm. had a blog post. Oh, wow. Everybody had a blog post every week. Well, we figured out who was a better writer, and if you were not a good writer, you... <laughs> got different <laughs> tasks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> our best writer was our lead engineer, Patrick Kading. Some of his blog posts are still just gold. That's great. So we would you know, lavish him with praise and say, like, please write more. Yeah, yeah. For a while, every time a new employee joined, we made him write a blog post. Okay. I mean, this was our way of sussing out, like, A, was content. Yeah. Like, so we said, it doesn't have to be fancy, just after your first week, write a blog post, and we could suss out, like, hey, are you a decent writer? Should we encourage you to write more? Sure, okay. And it wasn't a choice at the beginning, whether or not you wrote the first week post. You needed you needed content, <laughs> and you wanted to know who was good. Okay, I love that. <laughs> and then um, as time went by, I mean, now we're 70 people we don't make people write blog posts anymore. But, you know, in the early days, you're just like, you're all rowing in the boat together. Yeah. In the early days, everybody answered support tickets. Right. It's yeah, like, I mean, like, this is what we do. No other option, right? Yeah. Okay, so then you you had some someone doing marketing, kind of helping facilitate a lot of this content marketing, but were they also doing lead, like, you know, kind of lead gen? I'm sure you have all these functions today, so if you think about, like, the maturity level what were some of the functions that were fairly mature early on and then you like you know that were actually really drivers we were just experimenting with everything 
my theory was let's just try everything and see mm. if it works. We tried paid advertising. It didn't work at all for us just because nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to search for a feature flag management sure. system. It's just not something people do. Yeah. turns out when you're creating a category, it's hard to get people to search for that thing. Yeah. So my theory was let's just systematically work through every technique I knew from prior jobs and see what sticks. We tried outbound email. It didn't work. Mm. Now... Three years later, we do outbound email, and it's very successful. But back then, it did not work. Oh, interesting! It's also an important piece, which is like it's kind of it's not just even marketing; it's everywhere. You have to try things again. You can't just because it failed once. That's what I tell the team. I'm like, um, so now we're almost five years in, and I was like, please, just because we tried this thing in the past and it failed, it doesn't mean it can't not succeed now. Right. I have the same thing with food. With like the foods I didn't like when I was younger, I like make sure I retry them. You know, every five years or something <laughs> to see if to see if they're better now. Yeah. Some things are. I now love dim sum. Broccoli. Oh, okay. See, there you go. Uh, there's this theory, uh, this is a digression, that your taste buds change as you get older. Oh. Like when you're young, you love sweets. Mm. Like I remember like eating Starburst. Oh, sure, yeah. And Pixie Sticks. Oh, yeah. And Skittles. <laughs> and now it just seems way too sweet. Yeah, that's but, funny. But like when you get older, your, your, your taste buds react more to, to bitter. I just thought that I was uh, maturing and my, my palate was, was getting more refined. Well, literally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, so the thing about marketing is also what worked at one company can get saturated. Like um, at TripIt, we tried to do content marketing and it was just an utter flop because people have been writing about travel since Marco Polo. Oh, yeah, okay. Like every newspaper has travel section People love writing about their vacation. There is so much travel content out there. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's a great point. Versus technical content, there's just not a ton out there. Yeah, and it changes. It's like, you know, these new technologies every time change the game. And it's like, well, how you did continuous deployment, you know, or how you did deployments changed when you moved to containers and you moved to serverless. Like all these things change. So that's, that's a great point. Yeah, so there's a real hunger for good technical content. Yeah. But it's harder. Like, there's so many content factories out there that are will pump out listicles for you, but not good technical content. Yeah, like they'll pump out you know a listicle about like top ten ways to save money on your credit card bill. Right. Everybody has credit card bills, but like if somebody wants to write you know how to how to deploy your enterprise software in an air gapped environment, it's like a pretty hard listicle to write. You can't ship that <laughs> off to like some freelance writer. Yeah. <laughs> Which puts a lot of responsibility on your team because not only they have to develop it and deliver it and support it and sell it, but they have to like also describe it and write it. So it's there's a lot. It's a it's a big challenge, I think. It's a big challenge, but also a big advantage. Mm. Like so, the early days of selling, I remember we hired salespeople and they were pretty green. And engineers can be pretty tough audiences. Yeah, that's true. And they would get kind of beat up in sales calls, and I would say, look, you're the expert. They are looking to you for advice. They're asking you the tough questions because they are putting their jobs on the line to buy you. Right. Literally. Like, if they buy our solution and we go down, they get fired. Yep. And so now I think that really helped our salespeople because now they, they act like trusted advisors. Mm. And they have to know it. You can't go in there and sound foolish and be trusted. Yeah. So you but, have to get the get the knowledge too. Yeah, but I mean, so that's why you know they, I'm like, you are the advisor on how to use feature flags correctly. Yeah. And ultimately, I'm guessing what happens is they just end up 
hearing things your team has been saying or you say or John says or, you know, someone like they're just repeating the things that they've heard before. And you can, I think you can put together a lot of knowledge from just like being around this conversation and start to really understand these things and then have a very intelligent conversation with someone by just delivering what experts like, you know, because this is all you've thought about for the last like six years, basically. Right. Yeah. And so your insights, you know, the things that just, I'm sure you randomly say in the office or, you know, what happens in the Slack in some Slack channel is like the most advanced thought anyone's had about feature flagging. And so that like permeates the the rest of the company and they can distribute that out to the rest of the world. Yeah. So in the early days we were all about, we all needed to be in the same place. So we Mm. went through heavy bit and when we've hired our first salesperson, one of our interviews was you had to come eat lunch with us Mm. because we all ate lunch together every day. Like we're all like file down and you've been to heavy bit. Yeah, of course. Get our lunches and we'd sit together. And so part of the interview was you had to come in and get lunch with us and like because we're like hey you don't have to eat lunch with us every day like we get it if you have doctor appointment or just want to go to the gym but like sure we do this we do this yeah and um we had a daily stand up with everybody in the company hmm. so it wasn't just engineers it was literally marketing design me and our salesperson would you know stand up and say hey here's our blockers here's what's happening mm-hmm. so it was really effective at indoctrinating the sales team. Salesperson, sure. And to like, hey, this is how an engineering company runs. And so that way, they, I mean, even that, because that's the context through which your product is even being sold. So exposing them to, you know, this sort of like stand, daily stand up, which is a ritual that many software companies that you're selling to are doing, gives them an even deeper connection to to that sale. This is how a weekly sprint works. Yeah. Because then when a customer or a prospect says, "Hey, I need to wait for the right sprint to integrate this," you know what they're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, okay, sure. How yeah. long are your sprints? You know, yeah. <laughs> you can ask the right <laughs> question. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I told the team was, um, I mean, we were really tight knit. I said, look, I know a lot of engineering led companies hate their salespeople. They look at them as these idiots out of the field. We are not going to succeed unless we say this is our face in the field, closest to the customer, getting feedback and bringing it back to us. Mm, that's great. And that's been true for your for your yeah. salespeople. That's that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, they're the people who are out in the field talking to prospects. They're the ones who are like, "Hey, that feature that we think is really cool, nobody cares about this feature. We didn't think anybody want. Everybody asked for." Mm-hmm. So we have to treat our salespeople like they're part of the team, which seems dead obvious. But I've seen so many tech companies think that, "Hey, we could just like spin up a sales office over there, and mm-hmm. we'll build our product over here, and yeah. everything's going to be fine." Yeah, so that's great. So even though you you didn't want to be sales heavy when you first started the company, once you kind of realized it was important, you really embraced it and sort of made it a core yeah. uh, core part of your culture. And really, you probably softened the sales like role in terms of not you're not hiring the like finger gun, you know, uh, slick back Lamborghini driver. You're, these are people that understand technology and appreciate and love technology as well. Yeah. So Jason Lemkin gave a great talk at Heavybit. I still refer people to it. And one of his roles about selling to technical people in the early days is, would your team buy from this person? Right. And if not... Don't hire them. Yeah, because they're going to go sell to technical people like you. Yeah, it's very true. Still, you, you, I think you still need a different persona in sales than the engineering persona. You need someone who's like... I always say like the, you have to be a, a just like slightly shameless. Yeah. Like 
you and I as like founders are like slightly shameless because Oh, I saw you hanging handing out replicated hoodies at uh yeah. <laughs> when you at places where you should have been handing out replicated hoodies. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, like I'm, I'm not I'm not gonna say where it is, but yeah, everywhere, basically. <laughs> I've got like a bag of eighty of them. You had your then girlfriend like hanging the handing them out too. Like uh yeah, <laughs> at, at a large at a, at a, in, in Hawaii somewhere. Uh yeah. She's my wife now. So yeah, 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 then yeah. then girlfriend. Exactly. So that's why she gets to enjoy the, uh, the the life of replicated. But that's it. You have to be somewhat shameless in order to to expect that someone doesn't mind you calling again or like doesn't mind you sending another email or saying like because for me the perspective is always I know that the software that our team builds is so great and it's going to be so helpful that you're like I just I know it's going to you're going to love it once you start using it. Yeah. Right. You, you have, I mean, I believe that like our, our net promoter score is in the 40s and 50s. Yeah. I know that people get a lot of value out of it. Yeah. That's why I'm like, I know this is going to help you. Yeah. But you just like have to have that like little bit of like, yeah, I'm, you're, you're a little shameless because you're not this purist around like how people should operate or what you want the world to be like. You're like, yeah, I want the world to be better and use the best software possible. Yeah. That was a brutal lesson for me. So I'd been an engineer, I'd been a product manager, I'd managed salespeople, but to go from managing salespeople to being the salesperson, Mm. I had to get much better at rejection. Oh, yeah. Like a 50% win rate is high. That's really high, yeah. Versus if you're an engineer, like if 50% of your code doesn't ship, you're like, something has gone dramatically wrong. Yeah. I think about it as I've actually never, we've never lost a deal, they're just delayed. Yeah, that, that's you know. why I'm like nothing is ever closed loss. It's just, exactly. it's just closed on now. <laughs> it's just not now, right? Yeah, that, we'll get them someday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way. It's like, and it's true. Like some, so I mean, we do feature flag management. Yeah. Sometimes people are like, not right now, and then they'll come back a year later, be like now. Yeah, and then they want it even more because they realize like they try to build their own version and they're like got all this stuff and it's a big pain and no one knows what to do with it anymore. And so like, oh, just give us the thing. Yeah. So something we did along that those lines is um. A lot of what we were doing is trying to convince people that feature flagging was a better way to build software. Sure. So we explicitly published how to build your own system. Okay. With the theory that if people try to go build their own system, they would get sick of it and eventually come to us. Perfect. Because it's like, you're engineers. We know that you could build this if you wanted to. It's so true. I, I refer to this YouTube video that I watched. I was going to build a huge wood fence outside of the replicated office, like literally like a 40-foot fence that's like six feet high. And I was like, oh, I'll just like, watch a YouTube video and figure out how to do it. And I watched like a 20 minute YouTube video of this guy like using this like huge thing to dig out like the fence post holes and like all this concrete and like how he's measuring everything. And I was like, and then at the end it was like LA fence building. And I was like, just called that guy. I was like, I need you to build me that fence I saw on YouTube. Yeah. And so it's like perfect, right? Like turns out I can't do any of these things that you just did. So yeah. Thank you for showing me how the sausage is made because it's really complex. Yeah. Well, I mean, our thing is always, again, we sell to developers, we sell to engineers. It's like, I know you could build this. Here's how to build this. Do you want to build this? Right. Is this what you want to spend your time doing? Yeah. It's, it's, there's better ways to spend your time. And that gets back to effective selling is um, if you try to tell engineers they can't do something, which is a mis- or that they're not smart enough to do it, they get pissed off and they'll go try to do it just to prove them wrong. Yeah. Like if you're like, oh, this is too complicated. You'll never figure it out. They're like, screw you, vendor. I'm gonna go build this. Yeah, I. It's funny. I, I always say I think there's like, there's no, especially like our customers too, right? Are like these great, amazing, you know, developer tools and DevOps companies. And I'm like, every one of them could build the things that we've built. 
it's funny I talk to VCs and they're like, well, could somebody else build this? I'm like, somebody else could build every piece of software. I was like, if you've invested in a company because you thought like that's the only team that could build the software, you're an idiot. Oh, it's like the famous quote about Dropbox. When Dropbox launched on Hacker News, yeah. somebody's like, well, this is just a file share. Yeah, you could do this with these seven steps in like, you know, Vim or something. You're like, uh, well, <laughs> yeah, that's not really the point, right? But it's just like, I don't know, I, I think that especially today because so much software is like based on open source and you're really pulling off of all these other components in the world like rarely is there like a truly net new crazy thing even like all the ai stuff is like well it's just like t- tensorflow underneath the hood right it's like you know so it's it's hard to in my opinion to really have something that's so differentiated what we sell at launch darkly is reliability yeah so I go talk to people that have their homegrown systems. Like I have, the, I heard this horror story from somebody in New York, where it's like, well, we have this homegrown system to do our feature flagging. The caches don't clear correctly, mm. so like he still gets calls at three a.m. because like somebody turned a feature flag off and uh, the cache didn't clear, and like it's, it's all messed up. Yeah, I'm like, we sell you a system that you know will work. Turns out, cache expiration, one of the hardest problems in software, right? Well, there's there's only three hard problems. Right, <laughs> that's one of them though. There's two: caching, naming, and off by one. Yeah, off by one errors. Yeah. <laughs> well, Grant, it was really nice to talk with you. Edith, this is so great. I will have you on again sometime. We're going to go even deeper into some enterprise software stuff. This has been amazing. I've been in software my entire life, so my joke is that I made a company to fix all the problems that I had encountered in the the twenty years that I have been building software. That's the best. Yeah. Just get to build the things that uh, that have always annoyed you a little bit and make make. Oh other no 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 no! More than a little, a little bit. bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like the things that have made me like so frustrated when I was an engineer or product manager. That's I think what makes really great product people is that there's just a lot of you notice all the little things that could be better, and you're like, well, why don't we just make it better, right? And that's the best part. You know, I said earlier, NPS is really high. I read the NPS surveys and people say, you know, hey, this changed my life for the better. That feels really good. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders.